Creative Babble. Hey everyone. The episode you're about to listen to is going to sound very familiar. It's based on a story that I did on season two of Pretend. It's a story of an American serial killer who would murder American expats in Panama. It was New Year's Day. I was just sitting around doing nothing, maybe making black eyed peas or cornbread. I don't know, what, whatever you do on New Year's Day. And I got a message from a listener and a friend, Nikki, who said, hey, I could put you in touch with that serial killer that you covered on season two of Pretend. And I just could not believe it. So I was going to play the episodes on Pretend, but then I realized very quickly that after talking to the serial killer night after night, I mean, I've I lost track of how many times I've spoken to this guy, that this story needed a different home. And that's why I decided that this story needs to be part of Criminal Conduct, my second podcast with my co-host John Taylor. So that's right. All of season three will revolve around this one story about my interview with the serial killer Wild Bill and some of his victims, friends and family and also trying to understand and grapple with our fascination with these serial killers. What does that say about us, the listener? Anyway, listen to this new revamped version of that earlier story that you heard on season two with a brand new twist and some clips of my interview with Wild Bill, the American serial killer in paradise. And also, after you're done with the episode, make sure to subscribe to Criminal Conduct to listen to the rest of the episodes. All right, here we go. So, Javier, tell me about the uh, phone call you just got. John, it was the craziest thing because it's New Year's Day and there's nothing going on, really. I mean, it was just a quiet day and all of a sudden... I get this call from this guy who's known as Wild Bill. I want to be really clear that I don't feel like a serial killer. You know, and, and, and when I think of the word serial killer or the, of, the, of a person who's a serial killer, I think of a guy like Ted Bundy or, or a person who, who does things for compulsion or emotional needs, emotional reasons. And I, myself, I'm not a person who has any bloodlust. <laughs> These terrible things I did, I did, you know, starting about 15 years ago. And, and, and I was just a heartless, cold-blooded asshole who hurt and killed people for money. You know, I don't have a compulsion to kill people or a desire necessarily to do that. From the creators of Twisted and Pretend Podcast, this is Criminal Conduct Season 3, An American Serial Killer in Paradise. You're not a bad man, you're not a bad man, I'm not a bad woman. You're not a bad man, you're not a bad man, I'm not a bad man. 
Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. We're going to take you back to New Mexico, where this story all begins. Yeah, at the beginning of the show, you heard from Wild Bill. But before we go into Wild Bill's story, it's probably important that we back up a little bit and go back to the early 2000s. I'm going to tell you the story of Sharon McConnell Dickerson and her friend, Bo Eisler. Before Sharon met Bo, she had developed an aggressive autoimmune disease that caused her to start losing her vision. She still had some eyesight, but at some point she just had to quit her job and just leave her old life behind. She underwent numerous surgeries to try to save her vision, but eventually most of it just faded away. Before Sharon completely lost her eyesight, she decided to move to the desert in Santa Fe, New Mexico. On the license plates in New Mexico, they read the land of enchantment. And that's one of the reasons why Sharon decided to move there. And then after she moved there, she ended up meeting her friend, Bo Eisler. At the time, Bo owned a small shop and he was selling high-end cowboy and cowgirl clothes, hand-tooled Western belts, pottery, and jewelry. I came into his store, East West Trading Company. We just got talking and I, of course, was just I had to look around at all these beautiful things and I had a lot more vision back then. Today, Sharon's vision is almost completely gone, but back then she could still get around independently without anyone really suspecting that her vision was gone. When I met him, I did not walk with the use of a cane or a guide dog. Although my vision was impaired, I couldn't drive or anything like that. So I was able to look around at all these beautiful things and I found a pair of ruby-colored, patent-leather, vintage boots that just were the coolest boots ever. You know, I've had those there for so long, he said, but nobody's had the small enough feet to fit in those. And I said, well, you know, they look about my size. We did go out on, on a date and then other dates and um, had a, a romantic relationship for a number of months that ended abruptly with me jumping from his moving car, if that tells you anything. <laughs> we were on our way, I'll never forget, it was New Year's Day, and we were on our way to a brunch at friends of his, and he just, he said something that just cut me right to the core. 
I said, stop the car, I'm getting out. And he was like, but you won't be able to find your way home because you can't see too good. And it just freaked me out. So um, I ran all the way home screaming. I remember it was just, it was awful. It just hurt me so bad. And yeah, so that's how it ended. Months went by where, you know, I never heard from him. And then I got a call from him just out of the blue. He called me and admitted that he felt he was, you know, in love with me and that he really wanted to try again to, you know, approach a relationship and and that he felt like he could um, handle, you know, my disability. I told him that what he said was um, had, had hurt me so deep to the core that I could not enter that type of relationship again with him, but that I felt I could be a good friend and that perhaps we are always meant to be good friends because we had so much in common and of interest and, and like doing a lot of the same things. This doesn't sound like the greatest start to a relationship. Yeah, it was pretty rough, but it wasn't over because from that moment, Bo and Sharon, they became like brothers and sister. Sharon eventually moved to Mississippi and got married to her husband, David, and Bo left New Mexico to start a new life in Central America. And they went their separate ways, but they weren't really ever apart. Bo had become just disenchanted, I think, with Santa Fe. He really wanted to meet a special lady, special someone to have in his, his life. He wanted to go to a, a place that was slower, you know, quiet, a place where he could just be, you know, have a, a, a lot of privacy. He was a very private person. In 2004, Bo researched a few places in the Caribbean and Central America. He settled on a small chain of islands in Panama called Bocas del Toro. Initially, he loved it. You know, he, he and was often telling me that I needed to come and visit and, and see the place. And I didn't uh, feel really confident at the time traveling alone to, to Panama. Boca del Toro was the perfect place for someone who wanted to get away from it all. Yeah, in this part of Panama, you could buy a private island that's only accessible by boat for about $25,000. I mean, of course, at this price, Javier, it's too good to be true. The word is just definitely going to get out. You're going to get a lot of people flocking to this area. Yeah, you're right. I mean, $25,000, that's super cheap. I could imagine that once the word gets out, that tons of American expats will go down to Panama and build their dream house. Yeah, I mean, the, the downside is that Panama is known for corruption. And with a lot of foreigners coming in, you can expect a lot of real estate scams. People have to be really careful. They're buying a property. They may be buying a property that the person that's selling it doesn't actually own. And even though this appears like paradise, Panama is still a third world country, a literal banana republic. It's a place where criminals could give, say, a police officer $20, $40 and not even be arrested for something they should be arrested for. That's right. I mean, if you have cash, you could really own the criminal justice system. But luckily for Bo Eisler, he had a deed to his own property, so he was good to go. For the most part, I mean, we spoke couple times a week, you know? 
I mean, I knew about his friends and, you know, he, I knew about all his friends and what he was doing and where he was going on a, on a regular basis. He, he got disenchanted with, you know, the sincerity of some of the ladies he was dating and, and you know, he was a gringo, right, uh, with money. And uh, so that was, he, he became very lonely. So Bo Eisler put his house on the market, and eventually, a man going by the name of Wild Bill and his partner Jane were interested in buying the property. The deal between Bo and Wild Bill was on, and then it was off, and then it was back on again. But finally, Wild Bill and Jane agreed to purchase a property for $400,000. When we come back, let's meet Wild Bill. She looked like terrible. I mean, she she was a beautiful woman before. She wasn't that old. But she looked terrible. She really did look, look, look like gone. And, and I don't know, that allowed me somehow in that warped and really unrealistic morality that I had in my mind at that time to, to, to murder her, and I did that. Javier, just kind of describe Wild Bill Cortez. Well, I think the first thing we need to do is talk about where Wild Bill lives. He, too, lives in Panama in the province of Bocas del Toro. He's he's an American expat, but this guy is larger than life. He's huge. He's six foot tall, 250 pounds. The guy looks like he's on steroids. Yeah, it's one of those things a lot of people, when they first meet him or you ask him about him, it's something they say. They always mention how big of a guy, how muscular he was. And he's also, he's he was boisterous. He's kind of obnoxious. And uh, the life of the party, I, I would say. I mean, we just physically described him, but around town, Wild Bill was known as this real estate genius. You know, he had tons of money and was buying properties left and right and selling them quickly. And in fact, he advertised that his deals would be, quote, hassle-free with fast closings. And I think this was a a really good strategy on his part. I mean, one, with his ego, it's great for him to look like he's successful and rich. But there's the other thing, when, when somebody has a lot of money, Nobody has any problem giving people money if they think they're already rich. So he's kind of, you know, he's got this built in kind of idea that, hey, you know, he doesn't need this. He never needs the money. So what's, you know, if we're going to do a deal with him, he's doing it not to get because he's greedy or to get rich because he's already there. Yeah, but let's not paint this guy to sound like a real estate genius. I mean, he's a party animal. There's something off about him. Oh, I I definitely think that him saying that he was rich and very successful, I think that was all about his ego. It was merely a coincidence or just a happenstance that it would also benefit him in in deals that he's going to try to undertake. But while Bill was not down in Panama by himself. Yeah, that's right. He had this woman named Jane Cortez, who everyone just kind of assumed was his wife. Yeah. And what I find interesting about her is that she was pretty much the complete opposite of Wild Bill. Yeah, she's quiet. She kind of sits in the background, follows his lead. 
Yeah, and I don't know whether she was really that quiet because I think compared to how kind of wild and crazy Wild Bill was, anybody's almost going to come across like a wallflower or quiet because he's just the life of the party. He's so loud. He just draws so much attention. Yeah, but don't be fooled because I think there's more to Jane Cortez and I don't think she's as meek as she puts herself out to be. Wild Bill Cortez and the woman who he claimed to be his wife, Jane Cortez, they were best known for their bar, the Jolly Roger Social Club. And so while this place is open, we have Wild Bill, he's in the back and he's like the cook. He makes hamburgers for people and he was known to wear a Viking helmet. And then Jane, she was out front, she was serving the drinks. This property was located in a dense jungle area. I mean, you have to imagine that this bar is only accessible by water. So in order to get there, you have to use a boat. One of the things I find so interesting about the Jolly Rogers Social Club is that it's described as just this party place. But because of the location and it was so secluded, people had to make sure they left there before nightfall. The water was too dark. They were saying it's too dangerous to try to leave there after dark. Yeah, and let's talk about the sign that's outside the property. So outside the bar, you've got this skull and crossbones, and the motto of the bar is only 90% of members survive. And boy, is that ominous. But even more interesting than the skull and crossbones and the sign that says only 90% of members survive, it's the story of how Wild Bill and Jane acquired this property to begin with. This property actually used to belong to a family called the Browns. Right. And so we had Michael and Nan Brown. They were married and in their early 60s. And they had a son, Watson, who was 17 years old. Remember, this is a small island community. Everybody knows everybody. But the Browns were especially reclusive. I mean, they did not interact with the other American expats. But it was reported that back in 2007, when this story takes place, that Wild Bill and Jane stayed with the Browns for a couple of days. They were negotiating buying the Browns' property. Right. So it was kind of out there around the town that Wild Bill and Jane were going to be buying the property from the Browns. And so with this going on, the Browns were very reclusive as far as their thing. They homeschooled their kid. They didn't go out much. There were people who said they sent other people out to get their groceries. So nobody knew them very well. You know, John, part of the appeal of moving to Bocas and this part of Panama is to get away from it all. I mean, this attracts American expats who just want to retire, but it also attracts people who just want to disappear. And Michael Brown and his family fall into that category, right? Yeah, definitely. Michael Brown, his real name is Michael Francis Salem. And there's uh, reports that he's wanted out of the United States on drug-related charges. I mean, there's also kind of wild speculation that either he was in the witness protection program or he wanted to be in the witness protection program. But regardless of what exactly his circumstances were, he and his family went to Panama to hide out, to not be found. So while Bill has the property and the Browns are gone, so everybody just kind of presumes that they must have sold it to them. Yeah, this family wanted to disappear, which is kind of strange because they ended up disappearing, but somehow Wild Bill got a hold of their deed and is now the rightful owner, and that's where he decides to build the Jolly Roger Social Club. Right, and so people aren't necessarily alarmed by the Browns being gone because they, they just kept to themselves. But, you know, kind of the weird part of this, or I think should have kind of raised some flags, is that 
they left their possessions behind. So Wild Bill's got the the furniture from the house, and he also took over the Browns' company. You know, it, at first it seems like nobody missed the Browns, but that's not necessarily true because their son Watson used to write letters to his half brothers and sisters in Jamaica, and all of a sudden he stopped writing letters, and that sent off some sort of warning signs. And also, Mike Brown's financial advisor noticed that there were some weird withdrawals from the Boca's ATM. With the Browns gone and Wild Bill in possession of their property, he now establishes the Jolly Roger Social Club. So remember Bo Eisler, Sharon McConnell Dickerson's friend? Well, he was looking to sell his property in Bocas del Toro and return back to the mainland. He was approached by Wild Bill and Jane about buying the property. The night before, I think it was, that they would sign the papers, he called and um, was very upset and said, well, this couple approached me to, to buy the house and I get a call from this guy tonight saying that they're going to get a divorce and that the deal's off. So that was the last time I talked with him, I think. For me, as I know that my friend disappeared, I didn't know it at that time, but I, I just felt like he was so upset about, you know, what, was ha- what had happened that he m- needed space. I respected Bo's silence, times where I may not have heard from him, but it wouldn't be long that he would call me and tell me what he was up to or where he went or, you know, this kind of thing. But this time, I didn't, I didn't hear from him again. Bo was last seen November 2009, and he left Boca's without his cane, which he needed to get around, and he stopped answering and returning phone calls. Something was wrong. Another American expat lived in Boca's, Cheryl Hughes. She also went missing after having business dealings with Wild Bill and Jane Cortez. Because Cheryl's been missing, uh, I have to calling all her friends, and uh, they're like, well, this guy bought her house and is living in her house. Well, I knew immediately that was wrong, way wrong. But I called him and I'm like, um, hi, this is Mary, Cher's aunt, so what's going on? And he says, oh, she left her husband and was sick of this place, just wanted out, so she sold me this for a real good deal. Oh, really? And I said, I'd like to see the receipt for that. And he goes, well, no, she she had me sign a confidentiality statement. So here we go again. We got another person who gets involved with Wild Bill and is never heard from again. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Here's what you need to know about Cheryl Hughes. Cheryl and her husband, Keith, moved to Boca's just to get away from it all. They were successful business owners and they picked the spot to retire. But there were rumors around the islands that Keith might have been cheating on Cheryl, and eventually they ended up splitting up. 
Right. I mean, so they go to this kind of paradise, but things were not great between the two of them. And after they split, you know, people were saying that they noticed that Cheryl seemed down. She just she, she was telling people that she was crying at night. And on top of this, she was talking about the fact that she thought people might be trying to break into her house. Yeah, I mean, the word on the street was that they tried to break into her house two to three times. And every time they were trying to force open the filing cabinet, but nothing else was stolen. Yeah, it's like nothing was taken, which is uh, pretty alarming to somebody that they're coming into the house. So they're looking for something. So either they had the wrong place or what they're looking for, they couldn't find. I mean, Cheryl was down. But, you know, she was also out. She's partying. She's trying to have fun. She's trying to pick herself up. And one of the places that she would frequent was the Jolly Rogers Social Club. And that's where she met Wild Bill Cortez and Jane. And there were rumors that maybe she was going to end up selling her place to Wild Bill and Jane. One day, it was reported that Cheryl got on a boat with Wild Bill. And that was the last time anyone had seen Cheryl. Yeah, and unlike the Browns, who kept to themselves and not a lot of people knew, Cheryl Hughes was personable, likable. Everybody wanted to be around her. Everybody liked her. So when she ended up going missing, that got a lot of people's attention. And so now you got her friends going and they're looking for her. And they go to her property. And who do they find at her property? But Wild Bill and Jane Cortez. Jane, Wild Bill's partner, was standing on the property and she said, you are not allowed to step foot on this property because this doesn't belong to Cheryl anymore. So people knew that they might be buying the property, but there was one thing that stuck out to them, and that was that Cheryl's dog was still there. And they knew there was no way that she would voluntarily leave that property without her dog. Wild Bill holds the deeds to Cheryl Hughes, Bo Eisler, and the Browns' properties. And in Panama, where justice takes a backseat to bribery, that means ownership. Yeah, it didn't take long for what everyone suspected to become reality. People started talking around town, and eventually the Panamanian authorities started searching Wild Bill's property. And they came across Cheryl Hughes' Doberman Pinscher, named Jackie, and the dog led them straight to Cheryl's grave. And that's not it, though, because nearby, there were several other what appeared to be makeshift graves. Next time on Criminal Conduct, we're going to delve more into Wild Bill. It's not like I ever... Like, hey, come here. I'm going to kill you. None of that thing, nothing like that ever happened to anybody. I always shot people in the back of the head when they weren't looking. Nobody ever knew that it was going to happen. It seems to me like something could go wrong with letting someone know. I mean, like, if you tell me I'm going to kill you, I'm going to fight. I mean, like, I'm going to fight. But maybe I'll win. Maybe I'll be able to get away. And so I didn't want that situation. Special thanks to our executive producer, Advertise Cast, and to Ruby Rose Fox for allowing us to use her song, Bury the Body, during our intro. Her music is available anywhere you can purchase music. 
If you enjoy the podcast, find us on social media at CriminalCon. And please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. And make sure to listen to our other shows. John Taylor hosts the Twisted Podcast, and I, Javier Leva, host the Pretend Podcast. We'll be back with a brand new episode next week on Criminal Conduct. Okay, so that was episode one of season three of Criminal Conduct called An American Serial Killer in Paradise. If you want to listen to the rest of the season, go ahead and subscribe to Criminal Conduct now. There should be a couple episodes for you to binge. And please tell a friend. This is a a really, a very unique season. It's very disturbing and and it's um, probably the least favorite thing I've ever worked on, (laughs) to be honest with you. But uh, fascinating, nevertheless. So go subscribe to Season 3 of Criminal Conduct and let me know what you think. All right, take care. Creative power.